This is Laura from the Peaceful Life Podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 180, Reservoir Dogs Movie Review. Brian, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Derek, 180 episodes. How the hell did we ever get here, my friend? Yeah, you said that, and I was like, <laughs> episode 180. I'm like, I think he flubbed that up. We're going to have to start again. And it's like, no, I think we're getting close to 200. Holy cow. Crazy. Crazy. 200 episodes means we will get syndicated. All right. So yeah. All, the, all that bad money from syndication. Yeah. Let the, let the paychecks come in. Yep. Finally. So uh, how you doing? Good, good. It's uh, it's been a crazy, uh, been a crazy week. Been busy at work, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the good news is it's mid May. The weather's starting to get nicer. I'm able to go and do I, I do uh, once a day every day. I ride my bike. I do my exercises, and I'm finally able to get back outside and do my rides outside. And today was the first day in 2021 that I was able to take a very quick swim in my own swimming pool. It was a little chilly, but after a Long, hard ride on the bike. I'm all hot and sweaty. Came home, jumped in the pool. It was uh, about 75 degrees, which is about 5 to 10 degrees cooler than I like it. But uh, no, it was nice to get back in there. And it just that to me is is a signal that it's it's spring and summer's on the way. So put me in a really good mood, despite the fact that the water was so cold. (laughs) I can can definitely relate. I'm a big exercise guy myself. Oh, yeah, for sure. No, No, I'm not. I, I'm a big pop culture I, I, guy. I, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of which, what's new in pop culture in your world? Well, as I mentioned, I've been pretty busy, so I haven't had a chance mm. to do too much. But there's just two quick things I wanted to talk about. Sure. The first is I had a chance. You know, sometimes sometimes when you go to watch a movie, mm. you want to watch a film, a capital F yes. film, something yes. that's going to enrich your life, something that maybe has a lot of critical accolades. Mm-hmm. It won an Oscar. It was nominated for some important award or it's the performance of the career from some very important actor or actress. Other times you just say, I just want to be entertained. I don't care how based in reality this movie is. I just want to turn my brain off and have fun with it. And I found a movie that fell into category two this week. Okay, It's an action film called the transporter have you ever seen it have you ever heard of it i i, I you know me with new pop culture i don't know any of this stuff it's but from 2002 I, I for some reason i'm thinking jason Strathairn or whatever yeah jason statham that's exactly yeah, yeah, i don't care yeah. I, so, so i okay. have heard of it I okay just, just so it's uh it's it's a crazy action movie mm-hmm. uh it's it's written by luke basson who uh did movies like the fifth element oh, and right. uh, the professional which we reviewed on an earlier Ooh, episode Leo. Um, and uh yeah exactly so anyway the transporter is like i've seen the beginning of the movie a at least a dozen times the first 20 minutes is this like high speed car chase 
bank robbers are are being pursued by the police and the main character is the quote unquote transporter who's hired to uh, you know, get the bad guys from point A to point B for a particular amount of money. And it's just this nonstop crazy action car chase. And so I've, I've seen that opening sequence a bunch of times. Like when I see coming up next on TV, the transporter, I'm like, well, I'm going to watch, I'm going to stick around for 20 minutes to watch this opening sequence. And then that's usually where I stop it. And I realized I've never actually seen the entire movie, movie start to finish. So it was on TV a couple of weeks ago. I recorded it or on one of the movie channels. So I actually sat down, well, not sat down, I was riding my exercise bike this week and I watched it while I was exercising. And sure enough, that first half hour, awesome. And then I found I really enjoyed the second half. I finally sat down and watched the whole thing. I really liked it. But it's, again, it's not going to win an Oscar, but it's a pretty good action movie. I like Jason Statham. I find he's uh, he's a really, you know, he's a pretty good action star. He's easy on the eyes. He's, you know, he's in good shape and he's got a good sense of humor. He's got, he's got like good action movie charisma. And uh, no, it's, it's, it's uh, decent. And I, I learned that they made two sequels. So I guess in the next couple of weeks, I'll have to hunt down the Transporter 2 and the Transporter 3, which, you know. Sequels are always better than the first movie, so who knows how these are going to be. But that was uh, that was my first one. I assume you've mm-hmm. never seen it. No, like I say, I kind of heard of it. So yeah, yeah, it's going hey, for me. For you make two sequels, it obviously made enough I money guess. that yeah. uh, that that they felt it was that you know they're going to go. And I imagine it wasn't that expensive to make, but there were a lot of explosions and a lot of car chases. So if that's the kind of movie you're into, where it's mm-hmm. just I'm going to turn off my brain and watch an action movie with car chases and explosions. You're probably going to dig this movie. So anyway, that was my first one. The other thing I wanted to, and I think I mentioned this before, one of the, uh, one of the channels that I have on my, on my uh, cable package on the weekends, they do uh, a show that's like top 10, they do top 10 pop culture lists. And they did a list uh, this week that uh, really intrigued me. It was uh, the top 10 movie soundtracks from the 1990s. Now I know that's a little outside of your comfort zone because you know, it's past 1989, but. How how was your kind of how was your involvement with music soundtracks in the nineties, Chris? Oh, it wouldn't be great. A lot of independent films in the nineties. So I think of things like Pulp Fiction had a good soundtrack. Pulp Fiction, number yeah. ten on the list. Yeah, good pick. that was pretty good. Um, I can't think of anything else off the top of my head. So uh, I'll run down the list for you, and yeah. and it was a pretty impressive list. Yeah. I was like every time I'm like, oh yeah, that one was good. Oh yeah, and of course it was a lot of movies that were play you know, that featured like older songs. Yeah, uh, sure. You know, like one of the ones on the list is Forrest Gump. Like that's a great soundtrack. Right. Features all that music from, you know, the, the mm-hmm. 60s and 70s. But so, yeah, movie, anyway, but, yeah. it was a neat list. So I just wanted to share it with the listeners and share it with you. So this mm-hmm. was there th- again. This was picked by the viewers. So probably lo- I'm, I'm interested because probably lots of these have been like, oh, yeah, that's a good one. Exactly. Exactly. I, okay, I'm dying so to know. So from 10 from down 10 to, to one, 1 here. So yeah. it was Pulp Fiction. OK. Pretty Woman. OK. Yeah. Friday. Mm-hmm. Batman Forever. You know, seal, kiss from a rose and such. I know. Uh, hold on. Hold on a second. So I'm going to yep. show how cool and young and hip I am. I remember there's a really good song from Friday called um, You Can Do It, Put Your Back Into It. Sure. Yep. I, that was the only soundtrack on the list I wasn't that familiar with. But when they were playing the songs, I'm like, oh, I've heard this. Oh, I know that. So, oh, you know, I, I like I say, I'm young and I'm hip. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is. Sure. Uh, where were we? Okay. Batman Forever was number seven. Yep. Can't Hardly Wait was number six. Okay. D- Dazed and Confused, number five. Oh, yeah. Again, that makes sense. Yeah. Dazed and Confused was a movie about the 70s, right. so it's all Lots 70 songs. Yeah. Singles, which oh, was okay, sort of yeah. like the start of grunge in the 90s. So it's right. a who's who in the mm-hmm. Seattle music scene in the 90s. Yeah. Forrest Gump, we already talked about. Yeah. Reality Bites was number two. Oh, okay. And Wayne's World was number one. Oh, nice. Bohemian so, Rhapsody, of course. Nice. Yeah, no, it was a good list. I was I was uh, pretty impressed. A lot of times I watch this and like their list, they always have five or six on the list. So you're like, yeah, okay, those should be on the list. And then they have three or four where you're like, 
really? Who put this list together? But that was a pretty solid list. So, yeah. Unfortunately, again, this week, no documentaries, but I understand there are a, a series of biographies coming out on the A&E channel featuring a bunch of the wrestlers from the 80s from the WWF. So I think I'm going to pull those up on demand. And by next week, we should have a couple of those under our belt. So we'll talk about those on an That'd upcoming cool. podcast. You were never a big wrestling fan. I, I was. I liked wrestling back in the 80s. I thought it was pretty good, like WrestleMania 3 and stuff like that back in 1987. Uh, but yeah, I like that stuff. I used to watch Saturday Night's Main Event. Nice. Hulk Hogan and stuff. Oh, it was all good. Uh, so I got something for you this week. Um, Robbie Rose, our good buddy, also known as Robbie Baseball. You know, yep. remember he was on our show when he did the uh, the Mighty Ducks. Mighty Ducks. Yeah. Yep. He's a co-host of the Dingers podcast with Ty Childs. And there's an app, a new app called Clubhouse. I don't know if you're familiar with Clubhouse. But I'm it's not. basically a place where it's kind of a cool place where you can kind of go on and you can create kind of like a kind of like a almost like a panel show thing and people interact and they come and they listen and then they all be everyone speaks together you can interact with people so they asked me to join a panel and talk about baseball which is a you know a big love of mine you know mm-hmm. other than pop culture like me like my second biggest love in the world right and i, I joined the panel there was michael govier was on he's a great guy and the welsh i've been friends with the welsh forever and ellen adair was on it she's a big phillies fan she's an actress derek she was in homeland and billions that's a show you like i know that yeah yeah billions um, is great so it was a great panel really really great and we got to talk about things like you know kind of like what brought us to the game of baseball you know like what we love about the sport and kind of the friends that we've made uh, you know, as a result of, you know, the game itself, you know, and even especially like playing fantasy baseball and things like that. And the thing was that I thought was interesting, like other than I wanted to share that I was there and it was great, um, was the fact that um, they kept calling me something the whole time I was on the show. They kept calling me the OG <laughs> because oh. I was one of the very first. So I don't know if you know this, Derek, but back in the day, I started a fantasy baseball podcast back when there were no fantasy baseball podcasts outside of the big guys like ESPN, CBS, and then there was me. <laughs> and I did this show called Dear Mr. Fantasy and it, it became quite popular. So as a result, a lot of people since then have had independent fantasy baseball podcasts, you know, come to the forefront, right? So they were calling me the OG and I was like, guys, funny that you call me that because no, I, wrote, I, I wrote a song called I'm the OG. I didn't play it for them there. I didn't think it was appropriate, but I'd like to revisit it again here if you don't mind so uh just for everybody that joined us in clubhouse here it is i'm the og chance to play it again i'm so glad nice and like i say they kept calling me the og it was funny at the beginning of the show they do this thing that they do on dingers as well where they ask what are you drinking 
at the beginning yeah. of the show. Hey, what's everybody drinking tonight? And uh, so I was like, since I'm the OG, I guess I'm, I'm drinking Geritol. I don't know. <laughs> so, so there's that. I think you say like Labatt 50. And I'm like, oh, that's an old, that's an old man beer. <laughs> definitely. For those, for those Canadians out there listening, they definitely know that's the case. And another thing that old guys like is this. Here's your dad joke of the week. All right, Derek, you're a big Batman fan. So I wanted to guess I am this week. I know how much you're a Batman. So Derek, what do you call Batman when he skips church? Hmm. I have no idea. Christian Bale. Boo. See, he's a Christian and he bailed on church. So he's Christian Bale. Yeah. Uh, Well, it wasn't that I didn't laugh because I didn't get it. I'll see myself out. Who would win in a fight between Celine Dion and Justin Bieber? Like love-hate relationship? What does that even mean? Hey, man, 10 bucks is 10 bucks. I think it's getting warmer in here. You ever notice in movies they never look at the road when they're driving? We've never been separated before. (laughs) Nice effects, eh? Hey, maybe this Tim Hortons donut will change your mind, eh? Take off, eh? They walk in on the parents doing it? No, no, I'm not doing that. I don't do that. Okay, so last week you nominated Martin Scorsese's The Departed. And this week it was over to me to find a film that in some way ties into your movie. So I decided to go with 1992's Reservoir Dogs. It relates to The Departed in a few ways, at least in my mind. Um, First, there's the plot of the cop who infiltrates a a crime gang, you know, in order to kind of bring it down. And Mm -hmm. there's lots of machismo and violence and profanity. And it's from one of the premier directors in Hollywood history. So for those reasons, I felt it was the perfect complement for The Departed. And it's it's also kind of a Gen X counterpart to that movie. So I, I just felt it would work. I, it, it's also really good, at least in my opinion. We'll see how you feel about things. So um, with that being said, Derek, what is your initial take on going back and watching Tarantino's debut film, Reservoir Dogs? So I, obviously I'd seen it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen it many times before. I'm a big fan of Tarantino. Um, and this movie is definitely in my mind, one of his better movies. Um, I, and, uh, so I hadn't actually sat down to watch it in a while, but I, again, certain movies, it's like if someone says, Hey, you know, when was the last time you sat down to watch star Wars? It's probably been a while, but I know the movie pretty well. So, mm-hmm. uh, reservoir dogs certainly haven't seen it as many times as star Wars, but I've seen it enough that, you know, it was there. I didn't really get much new out of it this time, um, but I, I certainly enjoy it, and I enjoyed it again. And it was good, uh, good opportunity to go back and revisit it. Uh, you get to see some of those performers. Uh, you, you know, this is the movie's almost thirty years old now, so you're like, oh wow, look at how much younger some of these people are, how much thinner some of these people are. Uh, even even Quentin Tarantino himself, who appears briefly in the movie, he looks a lot younger, a lot skinnier. It's uh, you, you just. In your mind, you sort of always think certain performers are going to look and, and act and behave a certain way. And I think for me, um, a lot of those performers, I, that's how I remember them is from Reservoir Dogs. Because for some of them, that was sort of the first time, I, like for uh, like Tim Roth, uh, definitely. I think that was the first time I'd ever seen him on screen. So in my mind, that's sort of always how I remember him. But no, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I liked it a lot and uh, looking forward to talking a little bit more about it. So funny enough, the movie was completely ignored at the box office when it came out. It was released on only 61 screens when it debuted, and that was on October the 23rd, 1992. It had originally was scheduled to have a budget of $30,000. Tarantino was just going to shoot it on black and white. And then he ended up getting a budget of $1.5 million. 
It wound up grossing just 2.8 million at the box office domestically in the US. It finished 143rd that year. It got outperformed by such luminaries as Blame It on the Bellboy, The Gun in Betty Lou's Handbag, and Dr. Giggles. So the number one movie that year was Batman Returns, followed by Lethal Weapon 3, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, was something, a lot of sequels, eh? Uh, Wayne's mm-hmm. World, which you just mentioned not that long ago, was number yeah. five at the box office that year. Uh, League of Their Own, a couple other movies in there. Patriot Games was big. A uh, few good men. Oh, that, but it came out late in the year. So yeah. a few good men came but out in December. In all fairness, though, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit more. Like, so this is, you got to remember the time when this movie came out. This is the early, like it came out when, 92, I believe. 92, yeah. So this was early 90s. This is when we're starting to see more independent films. This was when we're seeing companies like Miramax that are trying to find those gems in the rough that they can snap up and uh, and have these films made for small amounts, hoping for big rewards. They're giving up and coming filmmakers, producers, directors, writers opportunities to with bigger budgets to try and, you know, make their mark. And from what I understand from doing some homework on this is, um, you know, the movie didn't have a very big budget and it didn't have any real marketing behind it. And it was just thrown out there. And that's part of the reason it did not do so well upon its initial theatrical release. But uh, as as we've learned from so many of Tarantino's projects uh, that come after this, it it found its place on home video. And that I got to think is where it started making a lot of money. And obviously, based on the strength of that, we have Quentin Tarantino has the career he has today. So anyway, I'm sure I'm stepping a little on your toes here, but no, and I'm glad that you mentioned like independent films because really it was, I want to say it was like 94 with Pulp Fiction when independent films and Miramax really came to the forefront. But yeah, I think one of the first movies that came out, one of the first films that came out that really kind of started that whole independent thing was sex lies and videotape Soderbergh's. Yeah. Soderbergh. I've never seen it. I've heard it's good, but I've never seen it. So let's talk a little bit about the director. Um, Tarantino, obviously. So like you, Derek, uh, Tarantino spent his younger years working at a video rental store. Now, obviously, unlike you, he went on to become a successful movie director. Now, that's not to say. I'm glad you added movie director. I thought you were going to say, unlike you, he went on to be a success. I was like, hey, (laughs) man. No, 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 no. (laughs) No, that's not to say you couldn't have accomplished that. You know, you just went a different way. You chose to become a podcast host instead, right? So, Oh, yeah. Like so um, many young children today do aspire to become podcast hosts. Yeah. He's not as good as you think, kids. Yeah. (laughs) So the one story that I really like about this, this film was uh, when, when Tarantino went to Harvey Keitel's house to discuss the script and Keitel was, he was like, I, he couldn't believe that Tarantino didn't grow up like in a tough neighborhood, you know, or surrounded by gangs and crime because Tarantino didn't. Right. And Keitel couldn't understand how the hell could this guy write this script? with no personal experience with the subject matter. You know, mm. but the answer was actually pretty simple. Tarantino not only watched, but he loved movies. Yeah. So he drew from his experience watching movies to write his script instead of from personal experience, which was kind of a new thing. You know, I mean, like if you think about it, like in 1992, I mean, there's only been, you know, films only been around for about 50, you know, 50 plus years. So, you know, really... Up until that point, people were drawing from personal experience when they would write. He did something different. He drew from watching other movies, right? That's where his experience, he grew up and working in the video store, watched a lot of movies, right? So that, that's where he got. And he also watched a lot of foreign films, right? So he could draw from that as well. Um, but the thing is, if, if you think about it, watching this movie, all the elements of his style, Tarantino style, they're all evident here 
in his first movie. Like there's the that seemingly minutia in the dialogue. You know, I mean, the movie opens up with a bunch of guys at a restaurant talking about the meaning of Madonna's like a virgin and about the merits of tipping at restaurants. You know, like there's so there's that that dialogue, the great dialogue that he writes. There's the implication of, of violence. I think we'll, we'll come back to that in a bit too. I think it's important. The, there's the, the Mexican standoff, the nonlinear storytelling. You could probably argue that Tarantino is the most influential director of his generation. I mean, and, and all the elements that we have come to expect from his style of directing are all in this movie. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot to unpack, but I agree with mm-hmm. mo- almost everything you said uh, and some things even more so. Um, so uh, definitely I want to talk about Tarantino's master of dialogue. Um, you figure when Tarantino was coming up in the 90s, uh, another director that was sort of putting out films around the same time that I'm a fan of is Kevin Smith. And I found that although they had very different styles and very different subject matters in their in their films, both of those two uh, writer directors had a way with dialogue that was very different than what I was used to, very different than anything else that I had seen. And I found that, um, again, with Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs and Clerks all sort of coming out around the same time, I found that those were all movies that um, were very dialogue heavy and you could almost listen to them like a, like a radio play. Uh, you didn't have to actually sit and watch it to get it. Or even in some cases, once you, it's like in all three of those examples, I've seen so many times, I don't even need to watch it to know what's going on. But I found that after I had seen Reservoir Dogs a bunch of times and I would just put it on in the background while I was doing stuff, just like you would today with a podcast or a radio broadcast or streaming music or whatever else, you start to focus more on what you're hearing rather than what you're seeing. And it, you really start to appreciate the dialogue even more in Tarantino's projects, um, especially those first couple of movies, when you have that chance to do that, when you know the visuals so well that you don't feel you're going to miss out if you're not seeing it and you just listen and you start to pick up on little things, certain rhythm of the way the characters talk, dialogue, uh, little va- mannerisms and, and colloquialisms and just the way like Tarantino throws a char- has characters telling jokes and just things like that. It's, it's very, very different than if you just listen to a regular TV show or, or a standard movie that comes out. Like it's just something about it. And I found Tarantino was one of the very first ones that I can remember, at least in my life that uh, that was sort of the master of this, where the dialogue was every bit as important. What you're hearing them say and how they say it is every bit as important as what you're seeing on the screen. And uh, I, and I think, like you said, it, this was hugely influential on a whole generation of, of uh, filmmakers. I mentioned it wasn't very popular at the box office. It wasn't popular with critics either. Uh, most critics felt it was boring. They said it was overly violent, which they were wrong about too, by the way. I think we need to stick a pin in that. I want to come back to that in a bit. Yeah, we'll come I back to that. Important. Um, so another thing I found was kind of interesting as I kind of was digging into this movie. Uh, so Tarantino makes his directing debut with this this movie. It's a heist film. And I know you like heist films, Derek. Um, it seems there's been quite a few prominent directors over the years who have made their debut with heist films. So if you think about it, Thief, back in 81, Michael Mann. Yep. Wes Anderson in 96 with Bottle Rocket. Brian mm-hmm. Singer with The Usual Suspects in 95. And heck, even Woody Allen's first movie was Take the Money and Run back in 69. It's almost like the heist film is suitable for director's first films, maybe because they can get it done with a low budget. Like, and it's all about storytelling, you know, and you don't really need a lot of special effects 
You know, like Jean-Luc Godard once said, all you need to make a movie is a girl and a gun. <laughs> and it kind of plays out here. That's fair. You yeah. know, I, that's what I think. Um, I want to talk a bit about the cast in this movie because we talked about the cast last week when we were talking about The Departed. And I, I yeah. wasn't really keen on the cast with The Departed. I felt they, it was a little miscast. Um, unlike that film, I thought this this film was perfectly cast. So Lawrence Tierney, <laughs> he's basically this legendary Hollywood tough guy, you know, and not yeah. just on screen either. He had a lot of run-ins with the law in his personal life, usually for drinking too much and getting in fights. Um, but he had a long career. Like he was Dillinger back in 45. He was on Star Trek The Next Generation. You know, that was really like that show. Not that I ever, I never I watched episode. Again, I don't remember. And but he, was Elaine's, he was Elaine's dad on Seinfeld. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the episode where Jerry had that new jacket, remember? Um, yeah. But he was perfect in this movie. Like, he, he's got that gravelly voice and he's barking orders and swearing at everyone. I thought he was fantastic. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I I, I didn't really know him or I hadn't really, I didn't really remember uh, his body of work. Again, when I, when I saw this in the nineties, this was, he was probably one of the performers that I knew the least about. So he certainly brought to the screen what that character needed. He needed to be someone who was clearly the brains of the operation. He was older. He was the money. It was his idea. And, and he obviously, the character is supposed to have this credibility from a, a long, hard life that put him on the top. And so that definitely came across, even though I didn't know this actor, the performer was able to deliver that. And from what you're saying, he may not even really been acting. It may have just, you know, close to home, but uh, no, I had no problems with, uh, again, he doesn't have a large part in the movie. He doesn't have a lot of screen time, but you definitely can feel his presence when he's there for sure. Chris Penn, I thought was great in this movie. And when this movie first came out in 92, this was the first thing that I'd seen him in since Footloose. And he looked so different. Like he'd put on a lot of weight. Yeah. You know, and it was such a different character, but he was really, really good in this. Um, such a great name to nice guy, Eddie, you know, um, and he well, was gangsters, like, right? Yeah. Gangsters all get nicknames and stuff. So, That's right. Well, you know, it's nicknames in this, right? yeah, and you got to wonder, is it one of those ones where it's a nickname that um, is like one of those opposites where you call a bald right. guy curly? Like, is it nice guy Eddie because he's exceptionally violent and right. he's like a real jerk? Or is it, is he the peacekeeper when, when two guys can't back down, nice guy Eddie gets sent in to mm-hmm. calm them down. Like I, again, it's, it's, it's those details that mm-hmm. are not explained in the movie that are interesting enough to make you think about it. So, yeah. Cause we never really find out the answer to that. Right. Yeah. But um, remember he was in true romance that we watched a few weeks ago, which was yeah. another script written by Tarantino too, by the way. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so Chris Petten, he died in 2006 from heart disease. He was only 40 years old. I, I felt he was a very unique actor. Like, I liked him. I thought he was so memorable in Footloose. You know, he got to dance to one of the most memorable songs of the 80s with Denise Williams' Let's Hear It for the Boy. And he, this guy does not strike you as a, as a real musical kind of guy. But I thought he was great in this. Um, Harvey Keitel, we got to mention. I, he was some pretty inspired casting, I think. You know, not only did he have a pedigree of you know, starring in, in early Scorsese movies like Main Streets and Taxi Driver, but he kind of came into this role as as like a mentor to some of the other characters. He was probably a mentor to some of the other uh, actors behind the scenes as well. I I just think he gives this movie a little bit of gravitas, you know? 
So this is the first movie I remember seeing Harvey Keitel in. Um, so again, like I was saying off the top for me, that's part of why I think this movie has, has stuck with me so much over the years is it's got a lot of actors who, who are big names or went on to have great careers. And for me, so many of them, this is like, this is the first time I saw them. This is the first time I remember seeing them. And he's definitely falls into that category. So you hadn't seen Taxi Driver when you saw this film? No, no, I had not. Yeah. See, I had already, I'd already seen Taxi Driver. So I knew him as Matthew the Pimp in that. So I liked him. I thought he was, I thought he was really good in this. Like I, I thought his character was good. And you mentioned Quentin Tarantino, you know, and, and like a lot of directors, you know, he, he features himself quite a bit in most, if not all of his movies. Um, he sometimes mm-hmm. just does small cameos or a lot of times he just provides like an off screen voice, but uh, sometimes he gives himself speaking roles. Although I don't think he's a very strong actor. I will say. No, I, I agree. And I think, yeah. I think he understands his own limits mm-hmm. and, um, uh, you know, again, this, I'm going to, I'm going to keep drawing a lot of parallels to Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith. I mean, mm-hmm. I enjoy their works equally, but well, maybe not even equally. I enjoy both of their works, but I'm not saying that either that Smith is anywhere near as good as Quentin Tarantino. They have different, they're good at different things, but they do share a lot of similarities. And I think that both Smith and Tarantino understand that their role is the, the writer and the director and maybe even the producer. And if they want to put themselves into their own project, great, but you shouldn't cast yourself as the lead. And I think both of them have gone on record saying that they, they wish they had been able to be in their own projects more, but you, you need to understand your limits. And so for this one, I was reading that originally Quentin Tarantino was planning to be Mr. Pink, which was Steve Buscemi's part, which is again, why that character has some of the most memorable dialogue, some of the most important He's in some of the most pivotal scenes of the movie because, again, the writer's writing that for himself. And with uh, with Clerks, the same thing. Um, Kevin Smith was going to be Dante. That's why Dante has all the best jokes in the first in the Clerks movie, because that was originally the role that Smith was going to play for himself. So I think that uh, Tarantino uh, in this one anyway, I think he did the right thing. He focused on Mm -hmm. the writing, the directing. Yeah, he wanted to be in the movie. So he gave himself a small part, knowing that his character was only going to be in a couple of scenes. And when the movie begins, it's just a black screen and you hear the ambient noise of the diner mm-hmm. and then you'll hear the guy speaking. And the first voice you hear before we see anything is Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. It's his, his voice is the first thing we hear in this movie. And then he's telling you the story about Madonna, you know, like a virgin is about blah, 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 blah. blah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's obviously an important part of that opening sequence. But the fact that he chose to make in his first movie. The first sound, the first voice you hear on screen in his first film is his own. I'm like, I think that was a very deliberate choice, and I think it works. I think it, it was a good idea. Uh, Steve Buscemi, we got to touch base on. Uh, probably the first thing I ever saw him in. Um, I, I never, I don't think I ever saw him in Miller's Crossing or Martin Fink. I, I never watched those films, so I think that this was the first thing I've ever seen him in. This guy is very unique. <laughs> there's, there's no other way to describe him. Like, there's, there's no one else quite like him in Hollywood. You know, and I think it's worked in his favor because he's never stopped working, you know. But in this movie, he just comes across as a scumbag. I mean, he just, he looks like a lowlife. His whole take on the tipping waitresses, it just, he's just a jerk, right? And then yeah. when he uses the racial slur later in the, in the warehouse, like the, the whole point is to make him really unsympathetic. And of course, he's the only one that gets away 
or or does he? We'll have to talk. Well, about again, you can sort. Uh, yeah, it, the, again, the movie ends mm-hmm. in the same the idea where you can hear things going off in yeah. the background underneath what's really happening, and so you can draw your own conclusions. But I, I certainly don't think he got away. I think he went outside and he got gunned down. Yeah, but I but so. I agree. I mean, I like Steve Buscemi. I think he's a good performer. He is definitely uh, not a quote unquote classically handsome leading man. Um, and hey, who am I? Who am I to talk? But. <laughs> Um, you know, he's no Robert Redford. He's no Brad Pitt. I think he understands his lane and he sticks to it. And he does. He's a very uh, strong character actor. He tends to be cast as like the villain in a lot of things. He tends to be cast in sort of these kind of supporting roles. Like he's in Armageddon with uh, Bruce Willis. And again, he's like the 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 guy who like likes to hit on the younger women and he likes to gamble and go mm-hmm. with prostitutes like that's a kind of like he always plays these sleazy scummy yeah. kinds of roles which is not to say that the person is even like like again i don't know much about his personal life who and knows? he might but, be the greatest guy but he just looks like that he just but yeah like and i mean he's and he's 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 a very good like i never saw what was the um boardwalk empire was that the show that he was in i heard that he was so fantastic in that i never watched a single one because it was on one of the channels i didn't get but um, you know, he, everything I've seen him in where he's, he's been in, he's been pretty good. He's obviously become friends with Adam Sandler cause he appears in almost every one of Adam Sandler's movies in like little small parts. And so he obviously, uh, you know, he, he's made a lot of friends in Hollywood over the years. And he's, like you said, he continues to work mm-hmm. and I'm sure it's largely because of his talent and probably a lot because he's made a lot of connections and he must just be a decent guy, uh, mm-hmm. behind the scenes. So, uh, Michael Madsen is another interesting guy, really prominent in this film, but he hasn't really done a whole lot else. Uh, he's the brother of Virginia Madsen. Uh, God, she was so, so good in Sideways. I still cannot believe she did not win the Oscar for that movie. Yeah, man. she was quite good. Oh, man. Well, she lost to Kate Blanchett for The Aviator, but, oh, mm. man, she was good. But anyway, uh, so he plays Mr. Blonde, and he is one bad dude, <laughs> you know. Um, I think we'll come back to the ear scene a little bit later. But Yeah, yeah, let's as skip for the that actor, for now. Like, he plays a pretty good despicable bad guy, you know. I I'm a little bit surprised he hasn't worked more over the years. Uh, now Tarantino's used him in a, in a couple of movies. He was in Kill Bill one and two. He was in The Hateful Eight, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But it's it almost seems like if it wasn't for Tarantino casting him, he wouldn't have all that many film credits. But I mean, oh, he was in the beginning of War Games. Remember, he was one of the guys that had to turn the key. Yeah, turn your key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Remember that. But uh, but now I seem to remember that. Again, rightly or wrongly, I seem to remember that he was supposed to um, be in Pulp Fiction. Like the the John uh, the John Travolta character is Vincent Vega, who Tarantino's like, oh well, I envision these guys were brothers. But from what I what I remember reading was that originally Pulp Fiction was supposed to be Vic Vega, and the idea was Pulp Fiction was supposed to take place before the events in Reservoir Dogs, because obviously. Mr. Blonde gets killed in Reservoir Dogs um, and he wanted Michael Madsen. And then there were some issues. Uh, again, I don't remember the specifics, but I want to say it was something to do with drug use and Madsen was just not available. And so that was part of the reason that the, the changes were made for Pulp Fiction. And then look what it did for John Travolta. It, it kicked his career back into high gear after a, a fairly lengthy hiatus of being, you know, a B or C list actor. Literally, so Madsen, literally pumped adrenaline back into his. Yeah. Career, right? So had Madsen been able to, to actually be, the the character that Tarantino or that John Travolta was in Pulp Fiction, things might have gone differently, right? Mm-hmm. It's the road not taken kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, personally, I, I don't think he's that great. He, I'm not a big fan of his work. Um, I mean, he was good in this, but take him or leave him. He's There's six other people in the cast I'd rather watch before him. Tim Roth. So outside of 
this movie and Pulp Fiction, he's not really an actor that I know very well. And as memorable as he is in Pulp Fiction, and he is, he is really, really good in Reservoir Dogs. Mm -hmm. So not only the whole idea that he has to keep his identity hidden, you know, from the gang, but for me, it all comes down to the scene when he is learning how to speak like a criminal and how to fit in without giving anything away. The commode story. Oh, God, the, the cops give him that script and he's got to memorize his lines on how to tell that. Like, as a former actor myself, like, I just, I love that scene. It's basically an actor playing a part where he's learning how to be an actor, you know? Yeah. And yep. the way Tarantino shoots that scene, like, it opens with, like, a, this long take, you know, which is just an actor's dream, a stage actor's dream, right? And yep. he shoots it from below the two actors. I think it's Tim Roth and, and, and Randy Brooks, I think is the name of the other actor. And then when when Roth finally gets the chance to kind of deploy that story to the gang, he nails it. He just got them, you know? Yeah. It's such an amazing sequence in the film. I, I think that Tarantino loves actors. At least it comes across on screen that he does. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I personally, I'm a big fan of Tim Roth. He was fantastic in the movie Rob Roy. And he was really good in the movie Four Rooms, both of which came out in 1995. If you haven't seen those two, I would strongly recommend them. They were both really good. Four Rooms obviously has the Tarantino connection in that he wrote, I think, and directed one of the sequences. Four Rooms is like... Think, like I don't know that movie. Was he like a bellhop or something like yes, that? Yes. Yeah, yeah okay. Ted the bellhop. Like Four Rooms is... They've got four... Uh, it's four different scenes, like four different sequences. It's four different stories all happening in the same hotel. And the, reason, the way they're connected is through Ted the bellhop, which is played by Tim Roth. And... And uh, Quentin Tarantino uh, wrote, directed and stars in the fourth and final sequence of Four Rooms. Um, so that's obviously the Tarantino connection. And then Rob Roy was uh, with Liam Neeson. It's a period piece that came out around the same time as Braveheart. So I think it got overlooked, but it, it's very strong. And then uh, and then later, Tim Roth went on to star in a, a TV series that ran a few years called Lie to Me, where he played uh, a character who was um, – he was a doctor who learned how to read facial micro expressions to tell if someone was lying or not. Uh, it was quite good. It was more of a procedural kind of show. Uh, it ran from 2009, 2011. looks like they did 48 episodes, but it was very entertaining. I went back and rewatched some of them uh, a couple of years back. The show was on demand and, and it holds up and, and he's really good in it. He's a, he's a good actor. I really enjoy his work. Going back to last week when we were talking about the departed, you mentioned some of the recurring themes in Scorsese films like machismo and, and like how they challenge each other's masculinity and some of those themes are at play here as well you know like more than once the characters try to challenge each other especially in regard to their masculinity the one that stands out to me is when wait, wait wait hold on hold on i'm gonna call you on that mm -hmm. one i i disagree i agree that they challenge each other but with the scorsese films it always seems to be you know for lack of a better term it's like a, it's a dick measuring contest it's literally the men trying to to out macho out man the other person and it's it's like they almost feel like it's their personal identity that i have to be more of a man's man than you it's about gender it's about the masculinity with this movie i felt it was more about power this movie could have been made with six women and it would have worked the same way i don't feel the fact that they're men is really that relevant to the to the uh power structure that happens in this movie um, I mean, I think if it was cast with women, it, it would play out differently, but I don't think it's that macho machismo kind of one upsmanship that you see in the Tarant in the uh, Scorsese films. I think this is just intended to be more of a 
it's it's a power struggle. It's these criminals that don't know each other. And he even says that when they do this scene where they give each other names, you're Mr. Blonde, you're Mr. Pink, you're Mr. Blue. And then he's like, let us pick our own names. He goes, no, no, no. It never doesn't work that way. Nobody knows each other. So nobody wants to back down. And that's exactly what we see here, right? It's this anonymity of people who've been brought together. They all think they're the best at what they do. But again, it, I don't think it has any, I never got the impression that it had anything to do with the fact that I'm the most manly man in the room. It's I'm the toughest person in this room, whether I'm a man, a woman, uh, an alien, a, a, a penguin or whatever. That's, that's a just, just good my point. Take. I think you're onto something actually, you know, I think you've really hit it because I'm thinking of when Michael Madsen as Mr. Blonde, when he says, are you going to bark all day, little doggy? Are you going to bite? Like it's more about power. So I think, yeah, yeah. yeah you're, you're probably right. That's interesting. That's a good take. Um, another theme that it, that seems to keep coming up here is, is competence. Like I, I made a note of this. A lot of these guys aren't very competent. You know, like for starters, Chris Penn is like the worst guy to put in charge of a crime gang. You know, he's only there because of his dad, right? He doesn't really know what he's doing all that much. I think he's really loosey-goosey. I don't think he runs but, a really tight ship. That's probably why Tim Roth was able to kind of infiltrate the gang, you know? But hang on. I don't, I didn't get the impression that, that Chris Penn's character was in that role. I, like it was, he knew these guys, but he wasn't in charge. Like he wasn't, he didn't participate in the heist. He's not, that wasn't part of his skill set. I got the impression. And again, maybe this is the quote, nice guy. Part of his name is he's more the, the talker. He's the, the, the get to know them, get the people that he's the, the guy who goes out and finds these criminals and and gets sort of a reading of their character and then recommends them to his father, who's clearly the brains of the operation. So, yeah, the fact that things are going wrong, I don't necessarily think you put that on Chris Penn's shoulder. I don't think that that it's his failing that this thing went wrong. Overall, the heist is not planned very well. Like, I mean, I mean, I know Tim Roth tips off the cops. I mean, so that's an issue. But, I mean, they don't really have any plans in place, you know, like in case things go wrong, you know, because they do, you know, other than we, we meet at the warehouse, you know. But again, uh, you, through the course of the film, you learn that there's an undercover cop in their crew. So the co undercover cop has obviously tipped the police that they're going to hit this jewelry store on this day at this time. And this is where their hideout is. So, again, had there not been an undercover cop in their crew... I think this heist probably would have worked the way they expected it to. And if it didn't, they would have been able to, as we saw, like they all ended up coming back to this warehouse. Well, if the cops didn't know where the warehouse was ahead of time, they probably wouldn't have found them quickly enough to stop them. So again, it's a lot of what if and maybes, but you know, I guess we'll never know. One thing that I made a note of it, everything is like lit really hot. So for, you know, I don't know what that means. So as an actor, I mean, we used to always say that, Whenever a scene is, is is really like flooded with light, like o almost overly lit, you you would say it's it's very it's very hot. You know, it's lit hot, and it seemed that every scene in this film is flooded with lights. And you know, I obviously Tarantino wanted to give this movie a, a bit of a look, and I read somewhere that the lighting was so intense on some of the scenes that the the fake blood on the floor was drying on the floor because the lights were so intense. You know, hmm. um, so that, that was interesting. Um, and then the other thing we got to touch base on is the nonlinear storytelling. Yeah, so for it's, sure. It's, it's it's a tactic that's been used in films before, obviously. Probably the most famous example, uh, definitely the most influential, I would say, is, is Citizen Kane. And Tarantino really is just getting warmed up, <laughs> you know, when yeah. he's doing yeah, this no because he really uses this technique well in Pulp Fiction, which is probably the best you know, non-linear storytelling in American cinema history. 
you know. Yeah, it'd be, it'd I, I, you got no Citizen Kane. Me here, man. Pulp and my Pulp Fiction is absolutely one of my top three all-time favorite movies, no question. And depending on the day of the week, it's number one probably just as often as it's not. So, like you always say, yours are Jaws, Star Wars, and what's the third one? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. Pulp Fiction absolutely makes my top three all day long. So, yeah, anything good you want to say about that movie, I'm going to agree all the way. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that I do want to be, uh, make a distinction, when we talk about nonlinear storytelling, it, especially in the way that Tarantino does it, it's not just start with a sequence and then move the story back, say, you know, 24 hours earlier, give you the buildup and then end the movie with that same sequence, right? It's not like it's, it doesn't start with guys pointing guns at each other. Oh, Hey, you know, how'd we get to this point? Uh, 24 hours earlier. Then you get a two hour movie that ends with these guys pointing guns at each other again. Uh, personally, that particular type of storytelling, I hate it. It is one of my least favorite TV tropes. You see it in television all the time. When that happens and I'm watching something, I really have to struggle not to turn it off or change the channel. I feel it's lazy storytelling. That is absolutely not the way Quentin Tarantino does it. When he means not, when we mean nonlinear, we literally mean it's going to go backwards and forwards and backwards mm -hmm. and forwards. And and this and, and he's not he's not showing you just here we are now. Let's go back and then get back to where we are. It's it's this all over the place. And part of the part of what makes nonlinear storytelling work is the way you can reveal details at a certain pace. So like again, we know. Or we suspect at the beginning of the movie, somebody's an undercover cop. They they make that pretty clear once they get to the to the warehouse in the first 10 minutes. Then as we start to get these sort of flashback, nonlinear sequences where we get to know each of the members of the heist one by one, you know, the 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 number of suspects starts to get reduced. So you see Harvey Keitel's background. Okay, well, clearly he's not the thing. You know, you see um uh uh, you know, Michael Madsen's background. Okay. Well, clearly he's not the cop, right? So it, it, the, the list of suspects starts getting shorter and shorter and shorter through this flashback. And uh, again, I think it's a really clever way to let us, the audience know who the, the mole is, but not right away. Whereas if you had told that story in a linear fashion, you pretty much have to spill the beans on that right away. You would almost have to start the movie. Like if the movie was told in a linear sense, it would start with, Tim Roth's character in the diner being told he's going to go undercover studying the, the, the commode story. And again, without all of the rah, rah of what we know is to come that sequence that you can't open a movie with that. No one's going to be interested. You need to know who these characters are. So the fact that, you know, it's a pacing thing. It's a way to introduce characters. I think Tarantino just does it so, so well. We obviously have not covered Pulp Fiction and maybe we will sometime. And I think one of the reasons we haven't done it yet is just because it's been so overdone. You know? Well, and I think we both probably agree on so many things yeah. that who wants to listen to two guys gush about their favorite movie for two hours? Yeah, and it's usually it's better because I, I hate your movies. Um, so one thing I want to mention was so I'm, I told my wife we're going to watch, you know, we're going to do this movie for the podcast and she winced. And I, oh, had she seen it? Yeah. And, 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 and I was like, well, what's going on? And she's like, I can't stand that scene where the cop cuts the, or, or the guy cuts the cop's ear off. And I was like, well, what, what was so bad about that scene? Like, what, what about that scene really, really got you? I'm curious. And she's like, it's so gross and it's so violent and bloody. No, it's not. And that's the magic of the scene, you know, because I think if you asked people about, you know, that scene, like you know, she was a good example, they might just say, like, like my wife did, that it's just Tarantino glorifying violence. You know, it's just a horribly bloody scene. But it's the exact opposite of that. You know, I, I said to my wife, I was like, you never see him get his ear cut off. And she would believe me. 
And so we watch the movie and the scene's coming up and she's getting all tensed up. And, and guess what happens? The camera pans away and points to the wall. All yep. you see is a wall. Yep. You hear the cops screaming in pain, you know, but you don't actually see anything. And that's what makes the scene so good. And it's what makes it so much better than what it could have been. I think a lesser director would have used the opportunity to show off a ton of blood, you know, try and try and make this kind of mark, you know, by, by showing this ultra violent scene. But instead Tarantino does something that's way more powerful and he uses the audience's imagination. You know, that's what made Jaws so effective, right? I was going to say, yeah, Spielberg did the same thing in Jaws. Yeah. I mean, partly by accident, but the fact mm-hmm. that you're not seeing the shark makes it more. And and you see that with a lot of horror movies. Your your imagination can make the scene in your mind seem a lot scarier than actually showing you something, right? A movie monster jumps out on screen. You immediately judge it. Does it look realistic? Is this something I believe? Is it a guy in a rubber suit? Is it computer generated? But if all we're seeing are reaction shots from from the characters and we're not actually seeing what they see, your mind is going to make up something way more, way different than than whatever the director could possibly put on screen. So, no, I agree. I agree with what and we talked about this a little bit before already when we talk about violence in movies. Yeah, no, I think I think it was a clever, clever way to do it. And exactly like you said, I think what people think they remember mm-hmm. is not what actually happened. And uh, yeah, and I, when that scene came on, I'll be honest, when I was rewatching this movie earlier this week, I didn't sit and, and watch every scene. Cause as I said before, for me, I like to enjoy it almost like a stage play where I'm just mm-hmm. listening or a radio play. I'm listening to the dialogue. But when that scene was coming up, I sat down and I watched intently because I know we had talked about this before and I knew we were going to talk about it again tonight. And you're a hundred percent right. Um, but so from this, I want to, I think this is a good segue into talking about the music of this movie. Well, just, just before we get to that, just okay. I, I want to just, just say this because people always blame Tarantino for excessive and gratuitous violence in his movies, but the violence is never glorified. You could make the argument, and I will, that the, the opposite of that is true. Like, he, like Tarantino doesn't, doesn't show the violence. He shows the aftermath of the violence. And, right. and for me, that's why it's not glorified, right? Like You see the cop talking to Tim Roth's character, and he, and he tells him his name. He mentions that he's married and he's a dad, you know? So to me, Tarantino humanizes the violence, if that makes any sense. Like, he shows you the consequences of of what happened. So as far as I'm concerned, there's way more glorification of violence in mainstream Hollywood movies than there is in Tarantino films. Like, Yeah, I agree. When Arnold Schwarzenegger cuts off a guy's arm and says something like, oh, now I'm going to call you lefty, you know, like, that glorifies violence. Yeah. You know, it makes it like fodder for humor and it desensitizes the audience. But when you show the consequences of violence like Tarantino does, I think it helps to humanize things yeah. and hopefully sensitize people to the fact that violence has consequences, you know. And I don't know. I think that's one of the great things about Tarantino. But anyway, so you want to talk about the, the, the music? Yeah, which so is I, the last thing I want to talk about yeah. was the music. So. Yeah. I think one important note, so it's got a, it, this definitely has a, we talked about top 10 soundtracks and this is part of the reason I talked about it because I knew we were going to get to this topic earlier or later rather. So this movie and Pulp Fiction, uh, as many of Tarantino's films, I feel have great soundtracks. Tarantino, like you said, he grew up watching movies. He's a pop culture guy and 
a big part of his influence, he said, is music. And a lot of times he's said that as he's creating a scene or he's writing a sequence, he has certain songs in mind that help influence uh, his creative process. And I think that that's abundantly clear in Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, where certain scenes probably would never be the same if a different music was playing or if no music was playing. And in some cases, the song or the theme of the song or the literal lyrics of the song are uh, reflective of what's going on in the scene of the movie or maybe is the opposite where you would have like a happy cheery song in a sequence where, you know, something evil is happening or the other way around. Uh, and Tarantino does this very, very well. And this is a good example. And I love this, this framing device of, well, if it's supposed to take place in 1992 when the movie was shot, how do you get away with having a 1970s music soundtrack that makes sense and so right away in the first two minutes of the movie they talk about hey are you listening to the retro weekend k-billy super sounds of the 70s where you know again <laughs> yeah. it, they, they just it's it's like so many problems in science fiction movies where they don't explain things where one line of dialogue is all you need and then everyone goes oh, okay i get it and you move on that's exactly what tarantino did here with the 70s soundtrack he just made it clear through the dialogue of the characters that the local channel is doing a 70s weekend and boom, now he can do all the songs he wants. And then he's got, um, who's the DJ? Stephen Wright, is that his name? Yes, yes. Do it, a great voice. And so he's doing the DJ and he's introducing the songs. And, he, you know, just like a radio DJ would, he gives you those little trivia tidbits. And, and again, part of the reason that I think Tarantino wanted to do that was the audience is probably not going to know a lot of these songs. Like, I didn't know most of these songs when I saw this movie. And the fact that I heard the DJ introducing a lot of them. It's like, Oh, that's what that song's called. Oh, that's who sings that. So I thought it was a clever way for, for Tarantino to, to again, bring this music that he loves to sort of a new generation of, of pop culture to, to new movie going audience. And then this scene that we were talking about a minute ago with the cutting off the ear, you know, you've got the stuck in the middle with you. You ask, you know, nine out of 10 people, you stop on the street. If you're like, let me play you a song and tell me what you think of you play that song for them. Nine out of 10 people are going to go, Oh, that's from the cut off the ear sequence in Reservoir Dogs. Like it's synonymous. Now you can't imagine one without the other. I know. Um, like has, has there ever been a scene more tied to a song than the ear cutting scene in that? Like it'd be interesting for us to explore that sometime. Yeah. And then of course, one of the things that again, I didn't really realize until I was doing the homework for this, there's no score. There's no musical score for this movie. The only music you hear are the songs that are coming from the radio on the super sounds of the super seventies weekend um, or whatever it's called. I'm sure I screwed that up. That's it. You have the literal songs. Those, those are the old, that's the only music. And it's uh, obviously it's unusual because most movies have some sort of score. And the fact that this one doesn't, you don't really realize you miss it. And then again, it sort of just is like the music becomes punctuation. When you do hear the music, it's usually because it's related to the scene or something important is happening. Otherwise, it's all dialogue. So we don't want you, you know, we want you to listen to what they're saying. We don't want you to be listening to the sound of the score in the background. It, again, it's a deliberate choice by a filmmaker to decide. I'm not going to make the score. What I want you listening to is I want you to listen to what they're saying. I want you to listen to the way they're saying it. And, and it's, again, it's an interesting choice. And I think it worked very well. That's, that's a good point. One last thing I want to mention too yep. is I don't think we could talk about Reservoir Dogs and not talk about the Mexican standoff. So basically this is where several people end up all, you know, yeah. end up pointing guns at each other. Stop pointing that gun at my dad. Yeah. And, and there's no way out of it. They're like, there's no way anyone can come out a winner. Right. And, and Tarantino likes to use this in his films. He used it really well in Pulp Fiction. I thought in the diner scene, 
Yeah. Remember that when uh, Samuel L. Jackson is able to talk everybody down by mentioning yep. Fonzie, which is great. He doesn't love that. But, you know, in this film, the Mexican standoff comes to its inevitable ending, you know. And I, I'm not sure of the exact origin of the Mexican standoff in cinema, but I think it was probably made popular first, you know, sort of in the mainstream with The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, but you could make the point before. that Tarantino really brought it kind of back into the pop culture zeitgeist. Maybe him and John Woo, too. But Yeah, yeah, that's fair. It's really that's good. fair. The um, only other question I had about yeah. this movie was at the end when uh, after everyone gets shot and yeah. Harvey Keitel's character is there and Tim Roth's bleeding out. And then Tim Roth's character looks up at him and he says, I'm a cop. I don't understand why he tells him that. Because then he, it's clear that Harvey Keitel just shoots him in the head. Yeah. It's like, well, by, by coming out and, and confessing that you're this cop, that's it. Your life's over. Unless Tim Roth's character at that point realizes I've lost so much blood. Yeah, he's dead. There's no way I'm living through this. I just want to clear my conscience. That's, that's the only explanation I could think of. That was kind of my takeaway from it. And then the ending, of course, you you felt that uh, Mr. Pink doesn't get away. Right. He gets out and gets shot. Yeah. If Again, if you if you listen intently, although what you're seeing on the screen is not necessarily the only thing you're hearing in the background, you can hear another scene playing out where Mr. Pink has gone out and you can hear the police shouting things like, put the gun down, put the gun down. Mm, like yeah. they're clearly engaging him off camera. And again, when you're watching yeah. it, you don't necessarily pick up on that, but when yeah. you're not watching it with your eyes and you're just listening, you can pick up yeah. those little details. It's like in the Pulp Fiction diner scene. It happens at the beginning of the movie and at the end of the movie, at the beginning of the movie, if you're listening intently and you're not watching it, you can hear Samuel L. Jackson talking. Right. <laughs> so, um, Good points. So uh, let's let's rate it out of ten. What would you give it? Probably an eight or eight and a half. Probably an nine. eight and a half. I, I would go nine. Yeah, I'll go nine. I think yeah. it's that good. And you great yeah, debut. It's, it's very you good know, for for a for a great director. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. All right. So on that note, fun with caveman. All right, Derek. It was my movie this week. That means it's over to you, my friend, for trivia. What do you got? Okay. So. Um, this movie's called Reservoir Dogs. It is. And so you were talking before about how a lot of filmmakers begin their career uh, making a heist movie. Yes. And what I noticed when I was putting this trivia together, a lot of movies that have been nominated for the Best Picture Oscar mm -hmm. have animals in the title of the movie. So oh, I've got a dogs. list. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. So right? I've got a list of 10 movies that were all nominated for Best Picture. Many of them won. And they all have the name of an animal in the name of the title of the movie. And they won the Oscar. No, some of them. They were all nominated for Best Picture. Okay. A couple of them won. I, again, I didn't uh, flag it. I, although we could probably go down the list and figure it out as we go. So I've got 10 movies, 10 Best Picture nominees. I'm going to read you the synopsis of the movie. And you give me the title. And the hint is it's been nominated for Best Picture. And the title has an animal's name in the title. Okay. Uh, all right. I can also give you the year if you're getting stuck, but I think for most of these, you'll get it without okay. the year. All right. Actually, I'm going to just give you the year because some of them are newer, and I think without the year, you're not going to get it. So yeah, this is I from the year. But yeah, I, this I'm is from pretty good with the Oscars, so I think I, I could do good. On okay. This well, do you want the year or not? Yeah, give me the year. Okay. So first one's from 2018. The heir to a hidden kingdom must step forward to lead his people into a new future and must confront a challenge from his country's past. Uh, that was 2018? Yep. I don't know. <laughs> that would be the Black Panther. 
Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> All right. From 2013, mm-hmm. this true story yep. follows the hero's rise as he becomes a wealthy stockbroker living the high life to his fall involving crime, corruption, and the federal government. Oh, that's the Wolf of Wall Street. Yes, it is. Yes. All right. Uh, next one from 1991. A young law enforcement agent must receive the help of an incarcerated and manipulative killer to help catch another serial killer. Oh, Silence of the Lambs. Yes. All right. This one's a little tougher. From 2016, a five-year-old foreign boy is adopted by a loving couple after getting lost hundreds of miles from home. 25 years later, he sets out to find his lost family. No idea. It was a movie called Lion. Okay. It starred uh, Dev Patel from uh, Slumdog Millionaire. Oh, sure it did. All right. 2019 this is a more recent one. A young boy in Hitler's army finds his mother is hiding a Jewish girl in their home. No idea. Jojo Rabbit. Oh, okay. you've obviously never seen it. It's no, quite good. I heard of it, though. Written yeah, and directed by T- Taika Waititi, who did. Um, uh, well, anyway, we'll go into him another time. All right. 2010. A committed dancer struggles to maintain her sanity after winning the lead role in a production of a famous ballet. Oh, was that the one with, um, oh, what's her face uh, from the Star Wars prequels? I hate those yep. movies. Um, yep. She won an Oscar for this movie. It was Black nominated Swan for Best Picture. Yes, Black oh. Swan. Good job. <laughs> yes. Nice. Got it. I was getting worried you're going to not get, the, get, get any of them here. All right. Uh, this one I think is a little easier for you. An American soldier assigned to a remote western outpost befriends the local animals and people, making him an intolerable aberration in the military in this period drama. What year was it? 1990. 1990. Uh, I don't know. Got an animal in the title? Nominated for Best Picture? No. Dances with Wolves. Oh, jeez. I never saw it, so I don't know. All right. 1975. A criminal pleads insanity and is admitted to a mental institution where he rebels against the oppressive nurse and rallies up the scared patients. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Hey, there we go. Nice, nice. All right. Uh, This one's a little tougher. From 2017, an artistically inclined 17-year-old girl comes of age in Sacramento, California. Oh, God, I think I know this movie. Oh, what the hell was the name of it? Um, Lady Bird. Yes! yes! Good job! I saw that. It was really, really, was really, really good. good. It was yes. actually on TV today. I was like, yes. oh, hey, look, there. Oh, I saw that. All right. That's the beginning where she jumps out of the car. Oh, that was a good movie. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Last one, number 10. Yeah. This is a nice, easy one for you. From 1978, right in your, real, right in your wheelhouse. Okay. Three lifelong friends from a small industrial town in Pennsylvania ship out to Vietnam where their dreams of military honor are quickly shattered by the inhumanities of war. Ah, Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter. There we go. Nice. All right. Two short years later, he lost his career by making Heaven's Gate. Oh, baby. Yes. So there you go. A lot of, a lot of, there was a lot of movies that had animal names in the title, but I, I was shocked to find how many were nominated for best picture. So quite a few nominated uh, for best picture. Wasn't the elephant man nominated for best picture too, back in 1980. That would have been. Oh, maybe I, again, once I, honestly, I put the trivia together. Once I got Mm -hmm. to 10, I'm like, that's enough. Okay, good. (laughs) 
Crouching yeah. Tiger, Hidden Dragon is another one that I just thought of too. That was a good movie too. God, that like was that a good movie. one. Yeah. Um, and then of course, Raging Bull. God, now they're all coming to me. You should. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So next week we're going to come back with a topic. So we'll be back with that. And until then, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.